Welcome to another episode of Creative Distillation. Your hosts, Brad and Jeff, from the University of Colorado Boulder's Lead School of Business, discuss entrepreneurship research while enjoying fine craft beverages. Previously on Creative Distillation, Brad and Jeff conduct field research at Beyond the Mountain Brewing in Gun Barrel, Colorado, speaking with co-founder Chuck Hickson about beer, the story behind Beyond the Mountain, and fish. This time, we're still at Beyond the Mountain, discussing academic research with Ethan Poskanzer, assistant professor at the Leeds School of Business and author of a soon-to-be-published paper about why academic organizations still prefer legacy admissions. Enjoy and cheers! Welcome to Creative Distillation, where we distill entrepreneurship research into actionable insights. I'm your host, Jeff York, Research Director at the Deming Center for Entrepreneurship at the Leeds School of Business at the University of Colorado Boulder. I am joined, as always, by my co-host. Hey, Jeff. I'm Brad Werner. You know that. The title is so long, right? The Leeds School of Business at the well, University. Okay, so which part should we drop, Brad? I don't know. We need, we need to figure out who's paying the bills first, and then we'll decide who we drop. That would be the Deming Center. <laughs> So, I am the research director at the Deming Center for Entrepreneurship. It's somewhere in space and time. It's in Colorado. It's, it's in, in Colorado. Great, it's in a great freaking place in Colorado. And we, ha- we have a new member of the team here today. Really excited to talk to him. Although I'm reading the title of the paper. Oh, wait, 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 wait. We'll get into the I title I will in a paper. second. All I'm saying is I'm reaching for my beer. So, first of all, this is our new format. We are still at Beyond the Mountain Brewery in lovely Boulder, Colorado. Uh, if you've listened to the first episode of this season, you heard a great discussion we had with Chuck Hickson, who's the founder here. And uh, once again, I just want to mention, what beer have we moved on to now? Like, uh, what did This you... is the Kolsch. Oh, okay, so you guys more of the Kolsch. Yes. So Brad is such a fan of the Kolsch, he went and bought some. And, it, actually, uh, it was free. It was free? Yeah, it was like, oh, that pointed to the table over there? They said, ah, here you go. So okay. we might be hanging so here for a while. So we're going to be here for a really long time. And we're lucky because we have a, a, a friend joining us. So Ethan Poskanzer has just joined the faculty at the Leeds School of Business and is working very closely with the Deming Sir. Welcome, Ethan. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thanks, everybody, for having me here. I've listened to this podcast in the past, so nice. pretty yes. cool to, to be honest. Nice. Did you hit the subscribe button? <laughs> I think I did. You All know, right. I yeah. the yeah, podcast yeah, so, app, so you want so. to make up for Ethan's lack of sureness and make sure you hit that subscribe button right now because that helps us an awful lot. We really appreciate it. So, Ethan, welcome to Boulder, Colorado. Thanks, In addition to it being good to be here on the podcast, it's good to be in Colorado, good to be in Boulder. So, you, you know, just finished your PhD, right? I finished my PhD in May, okay. um, moved out here actually a few weeks before I graduated. So, we're, we're new Coloradoans. It's been awesome. three or four months. So, I'm looking, I'm looking at the career path. Let's hang out at Goldman for a while and then go into academia. What the hell? So, the... <laughs> Goldman Sachs period was, that was always going to be short term. So I started, I went to college, Syracuse University, and I was in a history education program because I wanted to be a teacher. I hadn't really been exposed to college professors, so that was for the only teachers I knew about. So you were really well off for a while there. You were, your life was on a great trajectory. Everything was going Things good. Things were going well. You were sure of yourself, confident young person. Yeah, and then I paid a lot of money to go to Syracuse and yeah, all downhill right. from yeah, there. Yeah, 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 sure. But so then I got there. I was a research assistant for Dr. Mary Lovely, who is still a role model of mine. Oh, cool. And I got the idea that I wanted to be an academic. That's awesome. She was my advisor on, on some research I did and everything, so she was obviously really influential for me. And she pushed me really hard. She kind of even 
said, you know, I mean, she would have written the recommendation, but like, I won't recommend you for a PhD program until you try working just for a little bit. Smart, like, actually, right? Get a taste of the real world. So I did it probably about two hours into my orientation when I was 22 and picking out health insurances. I decided I, I, I did want to do the grad school thing. Oh, that's awesome. But I committed to my, my two-year commitment to her. And then I applied to, to PhD programs and, and, that's a and great got back story. in the system. Oh, that's good. I mean, I, I really think that's important. Yes. I think a lot of times, I mean, I'm not trying to throw any of my colleagues under the bus or anything like that. I will. I'm sure you will, Brad. So I think it's important to go work in like a large corporate setting if you're going to teach in a business school. So you know like both the, the good and the bad of that. Yeah, I think it's also useful, even the, the knowledge and the legitimation factor of like, if I'm going to spend my life studying organizations, it's useful to have been a part of a traditional organization right. Wait, just which, for a little while. Which organization is more cutthroat, academia or Goldman? Ooh. You know, there's a lot of competitiveness all around, right? I think. It's hard to say. It comes out in different ways. That's amazing, right? Um, I think a corporate setting's more cutthroat. I really do. I've never been there. Well, okay, so people always talk about, like, the politics and academia are so vicious and never have people fought so hard when the stakes are so low. And, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I don't know, man. My corporate experience was basically people were looking to blame someone else for anything that went wrong before they could get blamed. And the only way to keep from getting fired was to make sure you had enough on other people where they knew not to mess with you. Yeah, that's ridiculous. So I, 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 mean, that's I, I, I come from a culture of startup worlds and growing organizations. Well, that's very different. And, and totally different. Thank God I haven't had to experience that. And uh, with academia, I don't care. But on the other hand, what I thought was wonderful about it was you work with a lot of really smart people. You have virtually endless resources to do whatever it is you're trying to do. And if you fail but execute well, you get promoted. I, I failed utterly in all of my initiatives I ever had in my corporate career. I got promoted when I was sitting at home for six months with a broken neck. I, I think it was the meds, Jeff. That's what the, no, probably well, took the edge off no, the personality. That was, that, was, that was the Kung Fu Film Festival and watching all the Sopranos. So you anyway, lived the plot Ethan, of I, office I, I, space. I don't know what your experience was. I love, the, I love the comparative pathways here. Yeah, well, that, that's actually what led me to be a professor. <laughs> Painkillers and Kung Fu movies. I had a good experience. I don't think I would have been able to good. not work for six months and get yeah. promoted, probably. But hell, I did it for four years. Fortunately, my legs weren't injured uh, yeah, during my time good. as an investment banking. Uh, that's excellent. But now you're in academia. Yeah. So you did your PhD at MIT. I did. I went to the MIT Sloan School of Management in Cambridge. What was that like? People always have this vision of MIT being like this place where there's all these people with like building robots and things like that. And, you know, that's not wrong in a sense. You do in your social life meet a lot of engineers, a yeah, lot yeah. of people who are interested in technology. Right. For someone like me who knew I wanted to study entrepreneurship pretty much when I got there, Cambridge, Kendall Square, obviously a really cool place to do that. Oh, yeah. Happy to be transplanted into another place that's yeah. like that, where there are people around doing the thing that we're going to study. Yeah. But I don't know. I, I only went to one PhD program, so it's hard to say how right, MIT right. was different. I will tell every, you. I will tell you. I got to tell Ethan this: that the technology of my company, that I'm a co-founder of, came out of MIT. I've been in the MIT engineering lab many times. My partner is a PhD in optics from MIT, and I have to tell you, going through the engineering museum is one of the coolest things oh, ever, with cool. all the submarines and all this kind of stuff. Right. There, so I mean, it's it's really amazing. Space the, the name. What's the name of the lab there, where everything's like Media Lab? Yeah, that's yeah. Media. 
Yeah, that he place does. is cool. incredible. It's, Last it's, time I was there, I walked through there. And you have no idea what the people are doing. <laughs> it's just like, you're like, that looks really cool, whatever <laughs> they're doing over there. It's like, There's a lot of cool stuff. I don't know if this is actually an MIT thing or just if you're there, you spend a lot of time with like scientists, hard scientists. Right. right. Every now and then, like you make a friend and you go to their dissertation and like <laughs> they made progress on curing cancer or something. Right, right, really right, cool. right. So like those things are, are fun to see. Well, that's like, um, so we have this Renewable and Sustainable Energy Institute here at CU. And we have the National Renewable Energy Lab right down the road, and this institute is multidisciplinary. And I think uh, it's me, there's an economist, and there's a sociologist, and we're the only social scientists in the thing. And so there's probably like 200 fellows. So we go to these presentations. I follow like the first two slides. I'm like, okay, I understand the problem, <laughs> and I understand, oh, they're doing some science to solve it, and then I'm just totally lost. That's what we do, though. We can come in and, uh, right. you know, in the beginning and the end and think about the it application. It always gives me a little bit of the willies, though, because they totally understand when I present everything. And I'm just like, wait a minute. There's a little bit of a disbalance here where I can't understand anything about what they're doing. But they get what I'm doing perfectly fine. Perhaps what I'm doing is not as difficult. No, but they, they, it gives they, me a little they, bit they, of a they complex. They need different types of brains to commercialize. Yes, yes, to, yes. Right? You, can't, you can't let an engineer just run away and design AI forever, right? There, there needs to be <laughs> well, you some. Can, well, but. You can, but there needs to be some sensibilities built in here. I'm really a firm believer in the liberal arts education as well. Oh yeah, yeah absolutely. I have been to talks without naming which ones they are, where there's a technology, and I don't feel confident that the inventor has thought through what people are actually going to do when they get access to it. I totally agree with you. And it's, it's usually not as altruistic as <laughs> the inventor has in mind. So would you guys say there's an actionable insight to be pulled out here? That Facebook started out by rating girls' looks. Oh, um, yeah, there you go. That's actionable. <laughs> I mean, but think about this, right? I mean, you think about these people that, that come into great power, though, when their inventions really take off, and it's, it's terrifying. And so, you just don't know what, what's going to happen when no. something gets out there into anybody's hands. Nope. So, per the instructions of the director of the Deming Center, <laughs> to distill that into an actionable insight, I would say, perhaps this isn't so much for entrepreneurs, but for those that are stakeholders in entrepreneurship, not be dazzled necessarily by technology. Yeah. Uh, it's really easy to see some kind of like amazing technology uh, without a real team behind it. Yeah, well, and that's the thing, Jeff, right? You need this diversity in teams to really make things uh, more robust. Well, which is cool, because that's what we try to do in a lot of our educational offerings. And, and, and I, I think mean, that's a real insight that, that hopefully our listeners will take to heart. And it's something a lot of schools embrace. I think MIT is one of them. Yep. Uh, we know from talking to Chuck Easley that Stanford is one of them. Yep. We know we're trying to do it. In yep. fact, Brad's just getting ready to take over a class where, by definition, the teams have to be comprised of entrepreneurs and engineers. Like They can't get into class otherwise. And it's basically an accelerator program, which is something that Ethan has studied. So. Tell us a little bit about your research, Ethan. You've been studying accelerator programs, right? Accelerator programs have been my main research site, although the site in the paper that we're going to discuss a little more today is, is fairly different than that. Right. So what I, my overarching goal in my research is to understand why of all the ideas out there that people have, why some of them come into the world and come into our lives and get used. And I'm interested in how we can design organizations that both increase the opportunity to innovate and, and be an entrepreneur, not just from the sense of starting a new business, but in the sense of identifying a problem in the world that affects people and coming up with a solution that helps fix that problem. Right. Um, and I study how organizations that can be structured to help facilitate innovation and also to make the opportunity to innovate more democratic, more inclusive to groups that don't traditionally innovate. Right. Uh, and I've, I've especially focused so far on how organizations select people 
both for entry into the organization like hiring or to join a team and also the ways that organizations affect people's social networks and how they can put people in a position to make the relationships and the connections that they need to turn their ideas into a reality. I think it's really interesting but I, I also see like this pathway of startup and scaling and all of a sudden you can have a bunch of founders that really have this social DNA which you're referring to to change the world and do all that but it can change over time and how do you set up the culture from the beginning that actually passes the scrutiny of VC investors and all these things and where does that kind of identity have you found a place where it changes or starts to morph and they lose the original mission so I've focused on usually studying entrepreneurs that have some semblance of an idea, but I think a useful collision course that happens in accelerators, like Jeff talked about, which is a big part of my research, is when they get hard feedback for the first time. Um, hmm. When the first time they're exposed to somebody, which in a lot of entrepreneurs' life is probably an investor or some type of competition that they don't do well in. Right. But a big feature, I think, of an accelerator is the opportunity to, to talk to people who are going to critique you in a loving way or if they want you to be successful or something right. like that. But I think that's often a big pivot point for change. Yeah. So I don't do this anymore. But for a while in my classes, I had like this competitive aspect. And I was trying to like really embrace the idea of trying to actually let the students experience a little bit of what it's like to be an entrepreneur. And so they had a weekly competition where they would explain their proposal and they'd be ranked, forced ranking. You know, speaking of corporate saying GE style, uh, up or out. And if you finished in the bottom, you were the last place team more than three times, you could not pursue that idea anymore. And you would be shocked. Like this is undergraduates, they've, they've invested nothing but going to a class, which they have to do anyway to graduate. People would break down in tears. It's like they never had heard negative feedback. Or they'd heard negative feedback, I guess, there's never any consequence to it. And I don't mean like, ah, these kids today or some crap like that, but it's like, it really was powerful. People, I think, like reasonably love their ideas. They're proud yes. of them, they've worked hard on them, and sometimes it's hard to yes. get feedback from the market. It's the innovator's dilemma. They're in love with their idea, it makes complete sense to them, they've thought through it dozens of times, yeah. and they don't realize they're gonna talk to other people who, <laughs> if anything, hate it. Might not want to use it That's in right. that way. Right. I have handfuls, handfuls and handfuls of crying students a student last year, I think, was the first time he actually had real feedback, who was a computer science major who put his right hand through a wall and then couldn't do computer science for six weeks because he was in a cast. Oh I mean, God. this craziness happens through honesty, right? It's, it's not about to beat these folks up, but you got to be honest. you got to be honest. Yeah, and I think, like, an important thing to note on that is, like, so many of these ideas fail. That's normal <laughs> right. and okay and... You know, I think there's something to be said for spray and pray approaches, for lack right. of a better term, of like, as long as we give a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of people the opportunity to try and create something, some of them will, will make it through the, the tight sieve at the end of the process. So on behalf of the Deming Center for Entrepreneurship at the University of Colorado Boulder, Ethan. Wow, you got uh, it all in. Nice job, Brad. <gasps> like the marketing's like going to be so pleased with you. Yes, they are. Let's, let's talk about the paper in front of us. Okay. Okay, so how did this come about? Tell me where you're at and kind of talk us through. Yeah, so this came about a long time ago. For any PhD students listening to this, this project started, I was thinking about this morning, in the summer of 2017. So we're coming up on five years working on this paper yep. From, yep. from the open organization. Is that standard practice for an academic? Let's think yeah, about this for five years? Pretty much. I, I mean, sometimes you, say, you 30, get lucky. So it's but... a sixth of my life. Yeah, yeah no, right? I mean, it's, but it, but it is. Like, I mean, at some point this season, I'm not going to talk about one of my own papers, but I'm going to have one of my co-authors come talk about a paper. 
that paper is from my dissertation, and it was published. It's in press this year. Wow, that's insane. Well, I graduated in uh, 2010. I was right. 18. <laughs> so a sixth of your life was dedicated to through the front door. <laughs> why do, legacy why do organizations you know still prefer up. legacy <laughs> applicants? Seriously? <laughs> Brad's a real stickler for titles, Ethan. <laughs> what would you have done? You know what? I, I look at these titles. Great. First of all, I don't know if I would have spent a sixth of my life on <laughs> trying to figure this out. I'm sure he did some other things, too. <laughs> right, I had to pick like up getting guitar, a PhD. Was, that happened right? during that time yeah. period, too. Yeah, yeah, small, small accomplishment. So what problem was really sticking to your head? So there are two things here. This is, this is work with the admissions department at an elite U.S. college. Uh, and so there's a, a substantive and a broader theoretical thing so that's interesting here. So you didn't get here. declined at some college and you're pissed. I uh, did get declined <laughs> from my fair share of colleges, but I, I understand. Now we understand the there personal motivation. <laughs> I understand. Oh, I, was awesome. a, I would have counted as a legacy at <laughs> University of Albany in Siena. And, you know, I didn't apply to those. So, so I, I, just a real quick. I graduated my MBA from the University of Tennessee, and I realized the effect of this very quickly when I went to work on my first day, and my boss just graduated with her MBA from Wharton. Oh, there's a difference. Oops. I honestly didn't know that until I graduated, because every MBA program tells them, you are the best and the brightest. You are very great students. You've made it through the selective process. And that's true if you're an MBA student. You have made it into a great process. But understand, there's a pecking order. That's a good segue into one of the things that we found interesting about this. The first is that this is an interesting theoretical site to study the role of family connections and nepotism in selection organizations. Right. The other is substantive that for better or worse, you know, a lot of people have a lot of thoughts on how the world works in this way and I won't make a statement on them, but admissions to elite colleges is a choke point to a lot of opportunities Absolutely. and who gets to pass through that selection process. I want you to come back matter. in 7 years and make that statement though. Why do you why do you say that, Brad? I'm just 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 picked a number. You don't think it is? No, think I it? think I think that he's not being honest. Why? I, I, so I think that you actually, I think you believe something that you're not saying. Like what? I don't know. I'm not going to put words in your mouth. <laughs> I just I just have a feeling that you're not being totally transparent here. All right. I, I believe know. you, I'll Ethan. I believe that you mm -hmm. believe that no, 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 admissions no. to top-tier universities is a choke point for people. Yeah, I think we can all relate to, to Jeff's point. Opportunities are not distributed, uh, distributed equally. equally across the status hierarchy of colleges and universities. No, I mean, sir, I mean, like, you must get these things from Chicago. Like, so we, we went to all the various schools, and I get these things saying, hey, if your child is interested in attending, we'll be having this session in your area. So you know what I get from University of Chicago, truthfully, is if you know any qualified candidates, we'd love to hear from you. It's never aimed at family. It's aimed at your network. They don't do anything family-wise. I've never seen it. Really? That's is interesting. Is Chicago not a legacy school? You're the researcher here, man. Yeah, so, so I'm what, not sure. it, what do you mean by MIT legacy is school? Not, Help us understand. Um, I'm not sure at the University of Chicago in right. particular, but it's not a universal practice. Oh, interesting. Um, I did oh, not really? know I that. Did not, that wow. See, we already learned something. There's a takeaway for the Deming Center. There is. When you're <laughs> yeah. applying, if you're applying to elite universities, find out if they're a legacy school or not. Yeah, wait, so do And uh, arguably, you would increase your odds if they're not, I think. I mean, that's not really what you research. Did you do comparative analysis between legacy and non-legacy schools at all in any of, any of your research beyond the paper? So at this school, we do a lot of legacy, non-legacy comparisons. Our conclusions are, this is the research site is, is the admissions record at one school. So everything is, is local to that okay. one context. Um, but there are a handful of elite schools that are upfront about the fact that they don't do legacy admissions. That's probably a good thing, net, net. I mean, they don't do it. 
I don't know. But he, not. He, but it's he, not a good thing. Second. Ethan is kind of looking at you like you're. But, I'm it, not but make it's not a good thing for their. Uh, you used multiple logics in the paper. It's endowment, I'm thinking. Well, there you go. Right? We will, yeah, so without making an overall judgment yeah, on yeah, whether, sure. whether legacy admissions well, are good or not, <laughs> we that. can see how legacy <laughs> well, admissions sideline other objectives of the admissions department that some people think are very important and are reasonable to think are very important. What I took away from the paper, you tell me if I got it right, Ethan. Basically what you guys find is that for schools that employ a legacy system, it turns out, yeah, that's actually not a bad idea if you're interested in having contributions and donations and, and procuring your alumni base of donation. Yeah, that's fair to say. Because, I mean, let's make no bones about it. Certainly at CU Boulder, we do that. I mean, every, every university has to do that because, well, every American university has to do it, but European schools do it too. But, but we don't receive a ton of funding from the state. And is CU a legacy school? Do we know? That's a great question. I have no idea. I actually don't know either. I don't think so. Though. I feel like I should now, but I'm just going. I mean, we don't know, but I don't think it is. Could be, but I've never seen anything formal. I work a lot with our development folks. But what you don't achieve through that—this is why I think the paper really is quite interesting. What you don't achieve is any higher academic performance. That's right. And you definitely don't achieve any of the goals the university has around diversifying backgrounds or different viewpoints, which every university has a goal of diversifying their student body at this point. Yeah, I, mean, I, think I, say, I can't think of a help. university that's like, we aren't trying to diversify our, our student body. Right. So is that fair to say, like what the paper's conclusions are? That's a pretty spot on summary. What I would say overall is the advantage that legacy students get admissions is really, really big. Just the sheer magnitude of it yeah. is pretty striking. Um, and then we see that legacy admissions satisfies some objectives, not others. So legacies go on to donate more. Right. Um, they're more supportive alumni. They come from families that are more likely to be flagged as high donor families. They don't do any better uh, academically, so we see no case that they're better performers in any way, either do on the labor market. Do they do worse? It's close to no. Okay. Um, it's pretty comparable. Okay. Not significant, the difference. Yeah, and they're, they're far less diverse. And the, the advantage from legacy admissions is primarily given to rich students from wealthy areas, right. white students. The, so here's the a couple takeaways that I found. First of all, I think Ethan got his PhD in diplomacy. <laughs> <laughs> Number oh, two, though. Okay, oh, hold on. No, wait, no. wait, wait a second. No, he's, I think what Ethan is saying no, I'm, is he's trying to state clearly and without editorializing his actual findings, which is an important thing for researchers to do, Brad. I mean, we need to like make sure that, that we editorialize a lot here on That's fine, but I'm looking for takeaways, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, gotcha. so diplomacy, Ethan's a great guy. I'm glad he's on the team. So he's welcome back anytime, and we'll talk about the boss uh, or the East Coast. And you might even buy him beers. a free beer. Again. I might actually buy him a free beer. <laughs> wow! Um, but but the <laughs> Genesee beer ball. Bottom line, though, no big surprise. It's all about the money. I mean, that shouldn't be shocking to anyone. A sixth of your life, Ethan. A sixth of your freaking life. <laughs> well, okay. Here's another thing. I don't know if research necessarily needs to be shocking to be publishable. I think this puts a strong magnitude on a important phenomenon in society. It gives us a lot of insight into a topic of a lot of controversy, a lot of public interest, and is also an interesting case in how an organization's priorities can be sidelined in favor of others. You know, I think there's something to be said I, for I agree that. as yeah. universities are coming into more challenging financial situations for a lot of reasons, demographic change, the pandemic, that decisions that are made in the interest 
of maximizing financial gain will in some cases sideline other goals that are important to the university. Right, but my point is, we could have talked about this over a beer. You could have gone with one of your MIT buddies and cured cancer by now. <laughs> I'm teasing. That's a pretty high freaking bar, no, Brad. Like, yeah, I mean, hey, you could have written your research I'm, paper on cured cancer. No, I mean, I'm just teasing the guy. Uh, yeah, so no, you, you don't think gone. who gets into elite colleges matters? I guess my question is... There's a lot a, of research that would say that's not so, true. So I think it matters. My question is, do you think that this research will change the practices of any university? I don't know no, if but that's, that's necessarily not our role. my job. I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. Me, but I'm looking for it in my life. I look for impact, right? Can, what can I do? To well, this is okay. So let me let me try to, if you don't mind, Ethan, please. No, uh, no, I mind. Well, right? He was he was going to say something. No, oh, I, you can you start yeah, I guess talk. I would say I'm not I'm not I'm not against the paper. But I, you weren't necessarily our desired audience when we were writing this. Correct. We were trying to correct, make a correct, theoretical correct. contribution Sorry. to contribute to the sociology of stratification. By the way, this is for, I just want to mention this is forthcoming in American Sociology Review, which is the preeminent journal in sociology. How many articles from that journal have you ever read, Brad? Uh, zero. I didn't. Don't even. Yeah. I've never heard of the magazine. No, that's not true. Well, no, I read. I've read a first paragraph. There you go. Okay. So that so, doesn't count. I mean, I think there are a lot of substantive takeaways that I would be really excited if policymakers took. Whether Where? they will or not, absolutely, I, it's a little okay, bit out of my hands. So, what, so what would be your recommendation to policymakers? Actionable insight. My actual insight is to consider which priorities are being sidelined when you make a certain decision. That an emissions yeah. department has a lot of diffuse goals not unlike an entrepreneur, that are not always in concert with one another, and that there are trade-offs to a lot of decisions, specifically when abstract goals, like we want to admit talented students, we also want to raise money, get thrust up against one another, you know, in a concrete situation, like are we going to admit these legacy students? I think that it's important to consider the counterfactuals and what's being left behind when you make the decision to admit certain students. Cool. Um, are there are there legacy colleges or universities that are not legacy universities anymore? And is the practice evolving? It's evolving, not as quickly as a lot of people would like. So there are universities that have recently come out. I'm pretty sure Johns Hopkins is the one that recently eliminated legacy admissions. There's a lot of movement to eliminate legacy admissions, which is why the still is in the title. Is why do they do this despite all the criticism they get? There's an op-ed in the Times, you know, in the Boston Globe, a lot. People have strong opinions about these things and they persist. And that was one of the motivating questions was, was why do this, does this practice persist through the strong public critiques? Is there legal jeopardy for these uh, universities to continue the practice? Not to my knowledge as of now. I mean, higher education admissions is being litigated to a very prominent degree right now. And I don't think a lot of us don't know what's gonna come of that. But I, I think right now there's no legal ramifications. To me, yeah, Brad, like, I mean, a lot of the research we do is not shocking, but it's evidence-based. So you and I could say, you know, you and I could go drink a beer here at Under the Mountain, which is a lovely place, and we'd have a great time, and we could be talking about our kids trying to get to school. I'd want to ask you about that, because that's important. So we could be talking about that, and we could say, like, oh, I just feel like my kid would get in to this school if I'd gone there, or whatever, right? Well, social science research does, broadly speaking, that I think is important is it provides us, now whether or not people get that evidence or whether or not it gets to the right people, I totally agree with your critique there. We gotta do more to make sure people get that, and we do our best, but it gives us like some very careful, well done, peer reviewed, which is as close, I mean, you know, I don't know, there's no truth with a capital T, I'm not gonna get all philosophical, uh, but you know, the best we can do yes. is peer reviewed research, in my humble opinion. 
So this gives us a source to go to. Say, yeah, you know what? That's right. And not only that, it's not helpful to these universities, except for monetarily, which is really yeah. important politically because academia is under the gun, man. Have you noticed this since you become a professor? Like, people are like, whoa, professor, you know, <laughs> you know sit in your ivory tower and not actually help oh, people yeah, right. and all this crap. All right, I obviously have bias here, but, but I feel like academia and science itself is under attack. So I think it's important to do this research. I, I look at this, though, the benefit is to the university in a big way financially. I'm thinking about the students, and it seems to me that the benefit is also to the ego of the parents. Oh, yeah. Sure. To the, the parents of the students. Yeah, sure. Ego, perhaps, or their sure. desire to keep their children on the, the high-status, high-class lifestyle yeah, that, right? that they're on. Yeah, right? Yeah, really And I, I'm sure you've never... Uh, You've never flattered an investor's ego. Never. <laughs> it's only it's only been a day. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so been a day. I, that's right. I want to make sure we, we bring this around to like, how does this apply to entrepreneurship? I think Ethan was onto something there. I think it's really interesting. He talks about these competing different goals that a university has. And I think that's a, a sort of, um, it's sort of a unique thing for a public private entity like a university. But I don't know, when we start thinking about entrepreneurs there we go. that are trying to actually, as Ethan was talking about earlier, affect a real problem, I see this all the time with my <laughs> students. They're like, we're creating this product or this service that actually helps people, but we find something that actually will get us bigger profitability right. or there's a bigger margin or we can get to market faster. You see that in your classes? Oh, yeah. No, but I'm talking about my life. So, <laughs> so let, me, let me talk about the life and the companies that I've started and the fundraising we've done. There is a point where companies, early stage companies need cash. Yeah. And so I understand this paper completely there. Right. But there's also a difference between cash and smart cash. Right? Smart money is different than just money. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I've been... In my career, I will honestly say that I've been in this stage where uh, flattery and all those types of things to get someone to invest in yeah. whatever you're doing is is necessary. Yeah, there is the one difference that some of the organizations that do this, Harvard might be the most late-stage organization in the entire yeah, right, country, right, 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 right. and they're pretty well established. Yeah. Right. But, yeah, I see yeah, the general I'm just, point. I'm just trying to make a connection to sure. entrepreneurs. Totally agree. I have a, a beef with some of these very elite universities. I'll actually I'll just say it and Joel can edit it if it's if it's inappropriate. But I don't think that they reach enough people. Well, I don't think that's a particularly controversial statement considering uh, no, their so, admission but, rates. But I mean, right? They they have this process and they it's very insular in a sense. And well, the degree of of cutting edge thinking that's coming out of these institutions should reach far more people than it does. And that really that really bugs me. I agree, and I think that we can look at legacy admissions as, as one process that constrains that. Cool. That these are people who would have had access to, you know, these are, these are the children of people who went to elite universities, so not to a T, they are fairly wealthy, they went to good high schools already. It's not out of line for them to have gotten into this college on their own. Awesome. So I would say, personally, the actual insight that comes out of this paper is, look, if you're an entrepreneur, and you're trying to make choices, you're trying to meet competing goals. First of all, there's a whole slew of research we could talk about that shows how difficult that is. Yeah. But there's an emerging stream of research that shows that actually can also be a competitive advantage. And that's not what Ethan's talking about in this paper. But I think what it translates into is if you've got those competing goals, always going with the monetary may very well 
accomplish your monetary goals, but you're going to sacrifice it's the dangerous. other ones. It's a dangerous path to go down. Yep. Ethan, we can't wait to hear more about your research on accelerators. I know you're working on a ton of fascinating field research where you're going in doing experiments with these folks. And I'm really excited uh, you're going to be in the classroom applying this stuff to our students. I'm excited about that too. Yeah. Yeah. We're thrilled to have you here. And, I, and I hope you. you come back. I, I really, I want Ethan to be kind of a regular reoccurring guest because uh, he's fun to drink with. I oh. hope I publish enough papers to, <laughs> to get invited back. So That's Ethan, my goal. Just, just publish enough papers so you can be on like, you know, I don't know, every other month. <laughs> I'll, do, I'll do my best yeah, to make that happen. Five-year lead time. So again, the paper is through the front door. Why do organizations still prefer legacy applicants? It's co-authored by Emilio J. Castilla at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and Ethan J. Poskanzer, who is now at the University of Colorado Boulder. And it's going to be an American Sociology Review. It's not impressed yet, right? Not impressed yet. Getting the proofs back sometime next week, hopefully. So cool. excited to see it in. in so we'll link format. in the uh, in the doobly doo uh, to the to the paper if people want to check it out. And uh, thanks for joining us, Ethan. Yeah, thanks yeah, for having thanks. me, guys. Appreciate so it's it. Awesome. So here we are, Beyond the Mountain. What, what's our favorite beer from Beyond the Mountain, boys? For me, I'm going with the Kolsch. Ethan. Reese's Puffs. Oh, what was really? It? Yeah, the Reese's Cup beer is my the, favorite. The Reese's Puffs. I'm with Ethan too. I'm tempted to say the IPA to give us around. But, I mean, I'm the from Kolsch, the generation where that's nostalgic. The Kolsch is good. The Reese's Cup is the uh, the hipster. Yeah. But it's not. It's not the point where it's like uh, a gimmick beer that's unpleasant. Yeah, totally. It's the one I'm going to talk about later on. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, thanks for joining us on Creative Distillation, brought to you by the Deming Center for Entrepreneurship. I'm Jeff York, your host, the research director over there, and I'm joined with... I'm Brad Werner. It was great to see you again, Jeff. Ethan, thanks for joining us today. Thanks Thank for you. the whole team being here. We're excited for season four. Yes! Uh, it's going to be really... we got some awesome. cool things in the pipeline. We've got some awesome guests. We're going to be going on a road trip. Oh, boy, that's going to be crazy. Thanks a lot for joining us. If you like the podcast, hit subscribe. Yep. Send us a review. Write to Brad at uh, cdpodcast.colorado.edu. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Cheers. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Creative Distillation, recorded live on location at Beyond the Mountain in Gun Barrel, Colorado. Learn more and order merch at beyondthemountainbrewing.com. Learn more about our research guest, Ethan Poskanzer on his faculty page at the Leeds School of Business. His paper, Through the Front Door, Why Do Organizations Still Prefer Legacy Applicants, will soon be published in American Sociological Review. Check the show notes for a link. We'd love to hear your feedback and ideas. Email us at cdpodcast at colorado.edu. And please be sure to subscribe to Creative Distillation wherever you get your podcasts. The Creative Distillation Podcast is made possible by the Deming Center for Entrepreneurship at the University of Colorado's Leeds School of Business. For more information, please visit deming.colorado.edu. That's D-E-M-I-N-G, and click the Creative Distillation link. Creative Distillation is produced by Joel Davis at Analog Digital Arts. Our theme music is Whiskey Before Breakfast, performed by your humble hosts, Brad and Jeff. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week for the next round of Creative Distillation. If you've enjoyed this episode, you may also enjoy Leeds Business Insights. Check them out at leeds.ly slash LBI podcast.